much like a song list. I won't be needing that. <laughs> hey, good morning. Glad that you are with us today. Um, if you're watching online, boy, we're glad you're here this morning with us virtually. And those of us that are here together in the auditorium, um, it's good to see a few more faces and glad that we're feeling a little more comfortable getting back together physically. I'm glad that we're making Tom's work a little bit harder, finding uh, social distance for all of us, but uh, he can find more space, he says. So if you're ready to come back, we're ready to have you back. Glad that we're together. I heard someone say that if you ever see a husband opening a car door for his wife, it means one of two things. Either it's a new car or it's a new wife. <laughs> and while that might be a little bit cynical, there is some truth to the fact that the more comfortable we get with something or someone, we tend to sort of take them for granted. Even though we say, no, I'll never take that person, I'll never take this situation for granted, the more familiar we become, the more we tend to take those things for granted. We are continuing our sermon series, Who Is This Man? We're talking about Jesus, who he is, and the difference he makes. And of course, our, our goal for this series isn't just to learn more about Jesus. The goal is we want to be more like Jesus. So we've talked about the different way that Jesus lived and the different way that Jesus taught. We've talked about trust and love and service and worship Things that we know, things that we are familiar with, but it's easy to take those things for granted. Take for granted just how different Jesus was. The fact that, that his life of love really did change the course of world history for all of eternity. Um, how countercultural Jesus was and, and still is. And this morning, I want to talk to you about sacrificial love. The kind of love that Jesus exhibited and the kind of love that he calls us to as well. Because not only was Jesus a really different kind of teacher, uh, he was someone who actually claimed to be God. And again, we understand that, but it's really paramount to the, to the narrative that we remember and we don't get taking for granted that Jesus was God on earth. That Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. And you need to be sure and understand and remember that because you're going to have spiritual conversations with people. You're going to have conversations of faith with different people. Maybe it's at work. Maybe someone will knock on your door and they'll want to have a conversation of faith with you. And as you get into those conversations of faith, I'll, I'll, I'll suggest, I'll challenge you to do this. Just ask right up front. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. Just, just start with that question. Now, if someone wants to engage you in a conversation of faith, do you believe that Jesus is one with the Father? Because there's a lot of world religions who give Jesus a very special place. He's a great man. He was a good prophet. But they stop short of acknowledging that Jesus and the Father are one. That Jesus is a part of the Godhead. But Jesus himself is crystal clear on this topic. Uh, one day in the temple courts, Jesus is talking with some people, and they're questioning his identity, and they're questioning his um, association with the Father. 
And Jesus says in John 10, I and the Father are one. And then in the book of Colossians, Paul wants to be sure that we understand this same reality. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And a couple verses later in verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. And then a couple verses later, same book, different chapter, chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. Over and over again, the Bible states and Jesus claims that he and the Father are one. That he is equal partners with God the Father, God the Spirit. And I'll be the first to admit that that concept, the concept of the Godhead, three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, I'll be the first to admit it's a difficult concept. And I'm also, I'll be the first to admit that me, with my limited knowledge and my limited wisdom, I have a really hard time sometimes understanding and explaining a limitless God. And to be quite honest, I'm glad. I'm glad that I don't completely understand God. Because if someone like me could understand God, he probably wouldn't be much of a God, would he? And let me tell you why this is so important as we think about sacrificial love. Jesus wants us to know that he and the Father are one. Because if he wasn't God in the flesh when he was on earth, then the cross really doesn't mean nearly as much. In fact, it really doesn't mean anything. His death on the cross, if he wasn't God in the flesh, wouldn't really mean more anything more than the scores of other people that Rome crucified on a cross. Wouldn't be really much different. But we believe that because of the cross, it's possible for us to have forgiveness. It's possible for us to be justified. It's possible for us to be saved, pardoned from our punishment. Because no matter how good you think you are, or how bad you know you are, sometimes we take for granted that the Son of God came to this earth and through sacrificial love went to the cross on our behalf. The cross is kind of the, the definition of the time when man was at his worst and God was at his best. And knowing that Jesus wasn't just a good man, Knowing that Jesus was so much more than that, knowing that he was God, underscores why we still measure sacrificial love against what happened that Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago on Calvary. And I mean, you want to talk about an upside-down way of uh, teaching, an upside-down way uh, of living, an upside-down way of accomplishing a goal. That is the cross, right? And I am sure... I won't ask for a show of hands, but I am sure that some of you, probably many of you right now, are wearing a cross somewhere on your body. A necklace, earrings, tattoo, I don't know. But I'm sure many of you, and many of you at home, you know, you have a cross somewhere on your body. No one in Jesus' time was wearing a cross as a piece of jewelry. No one considered the cross uh, a symbol of humility and service and love. It was just the opposite. The cross was a symbol of brutality. It was a symbol of humiliation and defeat. 
But then God uses the cross for a completely different purpose. So I want to share with you just a couple ways that God wrote a very unconventional love letter uh, through the cross. And here's the first. The cross expresses the limitless extent of God's love. Limitless. Again, how could a vehicle of death express limitless love? Now, isn't the cross sort of the definition of cruel and unusual punishment? Now, people in our society that are uh, for capital punishment would never consider something like a crucifixion to put someone to death. It's too barbaric. It's too brutal. Too much bloodshed. Uh, you know, the cross we know was designed by Rome to inflict maximum pain for maximum length of time. It wasn't just putting a person to death. It was also the humiliation and the shame that was involved with that as well. And they wanted that pain and that shame to last as long as possible. Notice how Matthew describes the, the, the pain and the humiliation leading up to the cross. After Jesus is arrested, after he's flogged, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The very fact that Jesus chose the cross, that Jesus endured the cross, that Jesus didn't call down 12 legions of angels to set him free, shows the extent of the limitless love that we see at the cross. Now, Rome was convinced it was the most powerful force on the face of the earth. Jesus proved them wrong. Jesus proved that sacrificial love was more powerful than any army Rome could muster. What an unconventional method to show love. The cross expresses the limitless extent of God's love. But then also, the cross proves the limitless love of God. Proves Love is God. God's love. The cross is a physical, tangible thing that we can point to and say, that's how much God loves me. That's how much Jesus loves me. Look at the cross. Now, God didn't just say that he loves us. He shows us how much he loves us. God doesn't just say, I want you to blindly believe what I say. God says, I want you to acknowledge what I've done. Take a look at the cross. Now, the crucifixion is a, an event that uh, took place just outside of Jerusalem. It was witnessed by scores of people. It's been written about by, for centuries. God gave us an example that we can look at and say, that's what love looks like. It looks like that. Okay, what does that look like? Well, it looks like suffering. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like serving. God's love isn't some concept. It's not some theology. It's not a doctrine. It's real. God's love is, is real. You know, we're just coming off Valentine's Day. 
And if I were to ask you, how did your Valentine show you that they loved you? Or maybe we had a competition, let's have a competition. Whose Valentine showed the most love? You know, you might say, well, my, my husband got me roses, or my wife made my favorite lunch, or, you know, my girlfriend gave me a, a beautiful card, or my boyfriend gave me chocolate. All these ways that we show love. Who would win that competition if we were trying to prove who showed love the best way? Jesus wins, right? Take a look at the cross. There is no greater expression of love. Jesus wins. Jesus himself says in John 15, greater love hath no one than this. He lays down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus said. But of course he did so much more than that. He didn't just lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. And then he goes beyond that. He doesn't just lay down his life for his enemies. He prays for the people who are killing him while they're in the act of killing him. While on the cross, Jesus prays, Father, would you forgive the people that just drove the nails into my hands and feet? Father, would you forgive the people who are looking at me, staring at me, insulting me, and, and hurling insults at me? Father, would you forgive these Roman soldiers who are gambling for the only thing that I own? Who does that? Who does that? Jesus does that, right? Only Jesus would do that. Someone who shows love through sacrifice. Matthew chapter 27. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then skip down to verse 50. Then Jesus shouted out again and he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Understand that the temple wasn't that far away from Calvary. And as Jesus breathed his last, the, the, the curtain, the thick curtain that separated that area that was known as the Holy of Holies there in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you're probably aware that there was a section of the temple where God resided. And people like you and I, we could never go there. In fact, people like you and I couldn't get close to there. But only one person could enter that, that place. And he could only do it one time a year. Because that's where God was. But when Jesus breathed his last, that curtain, that fabric was torn from top to bottom. God did that. Why did God do that? Because God wanted us to know, at the cross, Jesus made sure that we don't have to go to a priest anymore. And we don't have to go to a preacher anymore. And we don't have to go to a specific place. And we don't have to make an appointment. And we don't have to wait for some time that because of the cross, God is available to us. We can go to God anywhere, anytime. We can approach God. We can worship God. We can speak to God. Because of the cross, now the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of me. That I have a personal relationship with God. And I don't want you to miss the imagery about the, this temple curtain. Uh, the Hebrew writer kind of lays it out for us in Hebrews chapter 10. And so, dear brothers, now we may walk right into the very holy of holies where God is because of the blood of Jesus. This is the fresh, new life-giving way that Christ has opened up for us by tearing the curtain, his human body, 
to let us into the holy presence of God. And since this great high priest of ours rules over God's household, let us go right into God himself. The writer there is saying, because of the cross, we can go right into God himself. You might have a version that says, let us draw near to God. And that should be our response, right? When we understand the cross, when we look at what Jesus did, shouldn't our response be, I want to draw near to God. I want to respond with with love. People ask, well, what, what exactly happened at the cross? But it wasn't just one thing. Lots of things happened at the cross. Paul wrote in Romans 3, For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We're made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. God has every right to be angry at our sin. And he dealt with that anger by sending Jesus to the cross. Hebrews chapter 9. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus died as a ransom for us. Something was owed. Something had to be paid. We couldn't pay it. Jesus paid it. You're familiar with Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? We have been justified by his blood, just as if I'd never sinned. And then one last one, and I think, I think 2 Corinthians 5 might be one of the clearest explanations anywhere in Scripture of what happened at the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are sinners. We are sinners in need of forgiveness. What do we need more than anything else? Our greatest need is forgiveness. And I've had people ask me, and I'm sure you have too, but why the cross? Why the cross? Why the, why, why the, why the blood? Why the brutality? I mean, couldn't have God, just, God have just said, okay, everyone's forgiven? He's God, right? Couldn't he have just done that? Couldn't have God just said, you know, poof, everyone's forgiven. You're all okay. Couldn't have done that? Why the bloodshed? Why the brutality? Why the cross? Here's the answer to why the cross. Because God is just. And because God is just, there had to be payment. There had to be punishment for the sin. And because real forgiveness always involves a cost. The Hebrew writer again says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. That's why in the Old Testament we read about you know, people would bring lambs and animals to the priest and they would sacrifice the, pre, the, the lamb and uh, you know, that blood would, uh, would move their sins forward for a time. But then 2,000 years ago, the spotless lamb of God, perfect, without blemish, became that sacrifice once and for all. Timothy Keller kind of explains it this way. If you have a friend... And he's backing out of your driveway and he backs over your mailbox. 
If you forgive him, you're paying for the mailbox. If you don't forgive him, he's paying for the mailbox. Either way, somebody has to pay. Now, when we talk about our sin, somebody has to pay. But because of God's forgiveness, he said, I'll pay. I'll send my son. And that will be the payment. I know you've heard this before. The essence of sin is when we put ourselves in a place where only God should be. And the essence of salvation is when God puts himself in that place where only we should be. We sin when we say we're going to take the place of God. And God, through his love and forgiveness, says, I'm going to save you because I'm going to take your place. Jesus will, will pay that price. Someone had to pay the penalty for sin. And the Father says, I love you too much not to offer grace. And there's a Bible word for that. There's a Bible word for what happened at the cross. Uh, The word's atonement. And we don't use that word very much. Um, We certainly don't use it outside of church. And even sometimes in church, we don't use it correctly. And I can give you the big, long definition of exactly what atonement is, but, but just think of it this way. It means to wipe the slate clean. That's what atonement is. It, it just wipes the slate clean. You know, I had a really dirty slate. Uh, I, I had a really sin-stained slate. God wiped it clean. Because of the blood of Jesus, that slate is wiped clean. Jesus put himself where I deserved to be so that someday I could be where I don't deserve to be, right? I mean, Jesus went to the cross. He didn't deserve to be there. But he did it so that we could be somewhere where we don't deserve to be. Heaven. <laughs> living with the Father for all eternity. And when you start to grasp that truth, and I think it's a process of of appreciation and understanding, but when that process starts to deepen and we start to understand what Jesus did at the cross, you can't help but not to become overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness and worship. And love. And love for the Father and love for the Son and love for each other. When you start to understand what was done for us at the cross. In the book, I'd Rather See a Sermon, there's a story about a guy by the name of Neil Johnston. He lived in uh, Newark, Ohio in the late 1800s. Neil Johnston had a wife and a small child. He could have been described as a man who was a good man with a bad temper. And one day, in a property dispute with his neighbor, he got into a fight with his neighbor. The fight escalated into a brawl, and Neil Johnston actually took the life of his next-door neighbor over a property line dispute. He was convicted of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. And in the late 1800s, life in prison meant life in prison. And Neil Johnston knew that he wasn't ever going to see freedom again. But something happened when he was in prison. He was very remorseful of the crime that he committed. And he committed to bettering himself. He started working on his anger. 
And he tried to, to better his life as best he could you know, in, in prison in, in that time. But over the years, the other inmates started to respect this guy. And they started to, to appreciate the kind of life that he was leading. He, he became like a model prisoner. And there was a kind of a strange custom in that day in Ohio. Uh, the governor of the state on Christmas Day would go to the state penitentiary and get all the inmates together and he would pardon one inmate on the uh, recommendation of the warden. And of course all the lifers knew that it would never be them who was pardoned. It was always someone who'd committed a much lesser crime. So on Christmas Day the governor shows up and the warden gets everyone together in the state penitentiary there. And the warden announces to the crowd that's lined up in rows who was going to be pardoned. He announced the name Neil Johnston. Silence. Said a little bit louder, Neil Johnston, come forward. Nothing. So the warden starts walking through the men up and down the rows, calling the name of Neil Johnston until he hears someone sobbing in the back row. And he goes to the back row, and there's Neil Johnston with his head in his hands. And he's repeating the same phrase over and over again. There must be some mistake. There must be some mistake. There must be some mistake. And the warden put his hand on his shoulder and said, There's no mistake, Neil. The pardon is real. Now we think about the cross. We're reminded of our sin. I'm reminded of my sin when I think about the cross. But then I continue to look at the cross. And I'm reminded of my forgiveness. I'm reminded of what God, through Jesus, accomplished in the cross. And I, I have that same reaction. There must be some mistake. There must be some mistake, because I know me. I know what I've done. And I know what I do. There must be some mistake. And the gentle touch of the good shepherd, hand on my shoulder, there's no mistake. The pardon is real. Now, there's a big Bible word for that. It's called atonement. I like to think of it as love. Sacrificial love. This morning, if the cross means anything to you. This morning, if you've never repented of your sins, admitted the fact that I am not living like God has called me to live, if you've never confessed Jesus as the Lord of your life, if you've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this would be a good day to make that happen. Or it would be a good day to start searching the scriptures. Or it would be a good day to talk to somebody who loves you and loves God. Jesus paid the price. But we've got to accept the gift. And there is no mistake. The pardon is real. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us the true love that comes at a price. And the deeper the love the steeper the price. Thank you for canceling our debt of sin by, by paying the ultimate price, the precious blood of your son Jesus on the cross. It's in his name that I pray. 
Amen. Hey, if you're watching online and you would like somebody praying with you or for you, there is a link that you can click on and someone from here will pray uh, about anything that's going on in your life. We'll get in touch with you if you'd like to go that route. You can stay as anonymous as you'd like to be. If you're in the auditorium this morning and you would like to talk to one of our shepherds, uh, after we dismiss, uh, there'll be someone here at the front of the auditorium. When everybody else leaves, you can just kind of make your way down here. And, and again, if you'd like the, the prayers of a, of a righteous brother, uh, we would certainly like to make that happen as well. Um, Dave's got a song that's going to help us prepare for the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Tim.